Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's episode on Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. So, a quick aside here, Aaron, how was your fourth? Explosive and lots of uh, ammo cartridges laying out in the in the patio from uh, exuberant neighbors celebrating. When you live out in the woods, you can hear the various fireworks shows from the towns around you. You can't necessarily see them. And it was very damp out here as well, so a lot of shows... In fact, I'll honestly be surprised if a couple of the fireworks shows that were postponed don't happen this evening, but... Anyway, speaking of it being Wednesday, July 5th, we are now two weeks out from the start of the 2023 edition of Comic-Con International down in San Diego. Preview night gets underway on July 19th, that's a Wednesday, runs from 6 to 9, and then Comic-Con proper gets underway on Thursday, July 20th. A show floor opens at 9.30 and then stays open till 7, and that continues through Sunday, July 23rd. With oh, By the way, the show floor closes early, folks, and I learned that the hard way one year, but it closes at 5 on Sunday. Now, Aaron and I talked on last week's show about how Marvel Studios, along with Lucasfilm, Netflix, Universal Pictures, and Sony Pictures, have all opted out of doing big presentations in Hall H. So there's no one going. What's going? There's no reason to talk about it. What are they even doing uh, this year? There's no one showing up, right? Okay. <laughs> well, funny thing, Aaron, the yeah. folks at Marvel Comics reached out and, and wanted to remind us that they're still going to San Diego uh, because as a company that publishes comic books, they want to support an event uh, like Comic-Con International, which, by the way, when it started out back in 1970, it was the Golden State Comic Book Convention. Back then, only three, 300 people showed up in total for the event. These years, typically, Comic-Con International draws as many as 135,000. Hmm. And so uh, the nice folks at Marvel Comics, and uh, it's like, yes, they are coming and they are paneling. And, and it, as of seven days ago, this year's San Diego Comic-Con International was completely sold out of passes. So don't feel like, oh, I need to be supportive. Let me drive down to San Diego because you can't get in. If you don't have a pass, you can't get in. But if you are going, there are going to be several Marvel panels. On Thursday, July 20th, there's the Designing the X-Men, a This Week in Marvel special event. This is a live edition of, Aaron, you're not going to believe this. It's other people who do podcasts about Marvel. No, I thought we were the only ones. Well, I'm as shocked as you are. Huh. But the This Week in Marvel podcast is going to sit down with a, a bunch of, of artists and such to discuss the design of the X-Men. That's going to be, by the way, in room 7AB from 4 to 5 p.m. again on Thursday. And then that same day from 5 to 6 p.m. in room 11, there's going to be the art of storytelling. Jumping ahead now to Friday, July 21st, from 3 to 4 p.m. in room 6DE, there's the Marvel Heroes, Hulks, and Super Soldiers panel. And this is Marvel Studios Editor-in-Chief C.B. Sabluski 
And this one actually kind of, it's like, man, I wish I could, I could go. Uh, J. Michael Straskinski is going to be there. And he's kind of doing a twofer because I want to say, oh, is it Friday? Babylon 5 animated thing? That's it exactly. That they, yeah. they they are actually having the premiere. I want to say on Saturday night. Nice. So and what's cool is immediately afterwards, evidently, the cast of the original show, the ones that have come in and do, doing voice work on the Babylon Five animated thing, are going to be there. So it's like, oh, I want to go. Okay. Anyway, jumping ahead, Friday yeah. from four fifteen to five fifteen again in room six D E. We have Marvel fanfare, and again, this is the editor-in-chief uh, sitting down with, with Joe Casita. You know, and, and that's what I love about this is you have two editors from Marvel sitting down and you know discussing you know the beauty and the secrets of comic making under the Marvel brand. Then, stepping away from Marvel comic books for a moment, the Marvel multiverse role-playing game from Glass Cannon Network. Now, mind you, this is actually away from the convention center. This is going to be over at the Omni Hotel in the Grand Ballroom up on the fourth floor. But from 5.30 to 8.30, they're going to be you know, showcasing this, this role-playing game. Then uh, if we jump to July 22nd, the Saturday, uh, from 3 to 4 p.m. in room 6A, this will be the next big thing. And the bullet point for this panel is the future of the Marvel Universe will be unveiled as a special panel and look forward to shocking announcements. So if anybody attends and wants to share, please get a hold of myself and Aaron. And then finally, July 23rd, the Sunday, between 10.30 and 11.30, again in room 6A, it's the women of Marvel. The women of Marvel return to San Diego. Join us for a lively discussion with Marvel talent across publishing, digital media, and the studios. What's it like for women working in the industry today? And what is, what's next for Marvel's women-led projects? Plus, stay for the end of the panel for an exclusive giveaway. So, lots of Marvel comic-related stuff at this year's Comic-Con International in San Diego. And apologies to the folks who work on the print side of Marvel for suggesting that this year's event wouldn't be up to snuff. I don't know. It just seems kind of weird to have a comic book company at Comic-Con. That's a little out of their lane. That's where you promote movies and, and TV shows. I think they should go to the Cannes Film Festival, where comic books are naturally the uh, prime subject. I think I've gotten something backwards, Jim. I don't know. Just face it, for so long now, I mean, the, what Comic-Con was. You know, you stood in line all day, you know, in the hot sun outside of Hall H because you wanted to be there as uh, Kevin Feige teed up you know what was coming next now we're having this stuff happen outside of of comic-con this month in fact did you see the benedict cumberbatch reveal just over the past 24 that he was gonna be donning the levitation cape one more time uh, in the near future for uh, uh dr strange 3 there well we don't know for sure oh it could be it, a team-up movie that he's appearing in there we go. Okay. All right. So Cumberbatch, who was a guest on the JW3 Speaker Series, said there will be some Marvel capers in the making next year. Now, again, caveat here, we still have the writer's strike going on. There is, you know, a threat of a screen actor killed strike. 
So we're hoping Mr. Cumberbatch is, is correct. Unless he's gotten a hold of the time stone once again. Then anything is possible. There we go. Okay, and, and again, typically, you know, when Kevin Feige's on stage in Hall H, we also hear about what Marvel Studios is readying for Disney+, Plus, the limited series. And there's been a question out there about whether or not we're going to get a second season of WandaVision. And Deborah Jo Rupp, who you may remember played the sort of the comical next door, wasn't she the the wife of the boss who came to the house and yeah was choking, but she factored in throughout the whole season. Anyway, she recently did an interview with Berkshire Magazine, and to hear her talk, uh, Agatha Coven of Chaos really should be considered the second season of Wandavision. She described uh, this new MCU series as, well, again, it's the second season of Wild Division for Marvel. It's very much like American Horror Story, where each season is this whole new kind of thing. Uh, I was shocked when they called me because I really thought that would be it. And I was fine with that. But when they called, I got so excited because it's a character I never get to play. She's going to be great fun. So... I'm kind of intrigued by that. I don't quite uh, agree with the American Horror Story thing, because that's an anthology where everybody's playing a completely different character. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the the plot's not in any way connected to the, the next one, although they did try and tie him in in later seasons. But yeah. more to the, yeah. the idea of... Yeah, sure, it could be considered season two of WandaVision, but I would rather mm-hmm. consider it to be like the Xth chapter of... Uh, phase four because that's what we're still dealing with our phases in these big huge stories this is true and so it's like well you know it's like taking a chapter out of game of thrones and calling that like its own thing it's like no that's part of a a much bigger tale Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, i think this is just more a a chapter of of phase four okay well i I guess we'll we'll actually have to see uh, Agatha Coven of Chaos when it comes out next year to see, you know, or maybe there is something going on there about reinventing characters or that sort oh, wait, of thing. Are we but officially in Phase 5 yet? I believe so. Yeah, was it like Ant-Man Quantumania the beginning of that? I want to say yes, but again, given how weird Marvel's been lately about Ant-Man Quantumania, in fact, it did you see for, uh, I, this is so strange, it's coming out of Japan, Okay. all of this footage from the Bill Murray plotline for Ant-Man Quantumania that evidently Murray shot for weeks uh, and, and initially was such a huge part of, of the storyline and all of that stuff. Oh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, virtually got tossed out of the film. We only get that that one scene now in uh, the restaurant, and then so bang. Does, does yep. Japan have like the extra footage or something? What, what's the story with the connection to Japan there? I don't entirely understand that. In fact, that makes me think I really need to break out my copy of Quantum Mania, the Blu-ray, and it's like, you know... Unless they added extra footage for overseas, like, Asian markets, didn't they do that with, like, one of the... Well, it was Iron Man 3 or something that they shot something in Shanghai that was specifically for the release in that market. But I also kind of think that there's been some movie that had extra footage that was specifically for the Asian market, and it could have been an extra clip in that, but I, I don't know. I want to say the the extra content that was shot for the Chinese market was what like two minutes, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, it, 
And I, I want to say it had the world's most awkward product placement. It's like, you know, there was a big name star for the, the, the Chinese market that then drank a milk energy drink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, okay. I wasn't hallucinating that. All right. No. no Maybe they was... did something similar to that, like for Japan markets, uh, where it's like, hey, we got you over here for a minute. Let's also throw in, oh, by the way, after I've been uh, done defeating a bad guy for the day, I like nothing more than a nice, refreshing bubble milk. Yes, bubble yeah. milk. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, all right we'll, we'll have to, I'll, I'll drill down more into that and we'll circle back on that story. Okay. The other thing that, well, again, remember last year, uh, you know, when Comic-Con happened in 2022, Thor, Love and Thunder had just come out on, on July 8th. And, you know, it was very front of mind. And, you know, people were talking about those mid-credit scenes, you know, Russell Crowe as, as Zeus telling his son Hercules to go find Thor and avenge me. I bring that up because Russell Crowe is now actually out doing concerts. You know, they, who knew he was a singer? And he was at the, the Thermal Hotel just recently and was sharing with the press there that, you know, that something came up the other day. Someone tweeted out that in D.C., I'm Superman's dad. In Disney Plus Marvel, I'm Thor, which is Hercules' father. No, wait, that he's in Disney Marvel, he's Zeus. Oh, well, again, I'm, I'm, I'm reading what he said. Evidently, he was in his cups, but oh, you, okay. you're right. Okay. okay. All right. But <laughs> I guess what Russell meant to say was in Disney Plus, I'm Zeus, who is, Her uh, you know, uh, uh, who is Hercules' father. And then in Sony Marvel, I'm Kraken the Hunter's father. And, you know, and he just, you know, waited for a moment and he said, you know, I'm fertile across space and time. I was kind of wondering about that. If if Sony is so eager to try and tie everything Spider-Man into the MCU, why in the hell would you cast Zeus as the father of Kraven? It, like, that really didn't make any sort of sense of, like, you you guys just used him in a, in a movie. I mean, not Sony. Sony didn't use it, mm -hmm. but Marvel did. But why mm -hmm. would you cast someone who's already been cast within the MCU if you're trying to kind of backdoor your way in storytelling-wise? That just seemed like a, a poor casting decision. Not that Russell's a bad actor and he can't play the role. He, he can, fine. Mm -hmm. It was just that he was already been used. So No, yeah. no, no. I mean, you're not wrong. And it is kind of an intriguing casting decision for that very same reason. That, you know, he clearly has a role and an identity in the MCU. And it kind of does muddy the water for Spunk yeah. about, okay, he's this guy here and this guy there. But what was kind of interesting is only a Russell Crowe, given his career, can talk about what's going on with comic book movies today. And I had a really kind of thoughtful response, which was the filmmakers that they're using and the assets that they're giving those filmmakers are, are getting better and better and better. And it's now probably simpler to give more nuance to these characters because the audience has, has grown with them. Maybe the first few of these comic book movies had to be very simple, but now the audience has grown with them and they, they want nuance. So I think at first there might be a misconception about the way comic book movies are made and, and having to work against blue screen, but now they've changed. Now, I bring that up, Aaron, because James Gunn over at DCU, he actually brought up in a recent interview this very same issue that Russell was talking about, but suggested 
that even though Marvel and DC are trying to do more nuanced, more ambitious films, they could still do better. As he points out, embrace a wider range of tones when it came to the films they're making, the stories they're trying to tell. This is the quote. Now that's happening. It, it's relatively new. And the same thing with Marvel. I, I mean, even the MCU, relatively new. So I don't know if there's any innate things about tone. But I think what both the MCU and DCU, I think what, what they both need to do is have a wider range of tones than they presently do. I mean, I think they work, but they could do a better job. I don't know. I mean, when you add things into the pile like Werewolf by Night, mm -hmm. that black and white, that old 60s Saturday movie of the week kind of mm -hmm. vibe it had going, I think that's a good stretch in the tone category. Mm -hmm. I do think that Thor Love and Thunder almost went to a breaking point with the the silly humor. Mm -hmm. And then there are other movies that are a little bit more serious. I think James Gunn did a fine job of having fun and seriousness within the the Guardians last outing. Yeah, I mean there there is usually the the tight, bright and keep it moving kind of thing where, you know, there's always a quip and it's always very colorful and whatnot. I don't ever want to see it get totally desaturated colors and gritty and dark for the sake of mm -hmm. gritty and dark. But when we get to the Blade movie, I sure mm -hmm. as heck do want to see a lot of blood. And because they're vampires by nature, they're going to be a hell of a lot more night scenes, which will make it mm -hmm. dark. And so, uh, yeah, I, th I think, you know, he's right. There's still room to grow. But I also okay. think we've got the proper projects in the pipeline to allow for that growth, hopefully. Okay. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. But that said, speaking of the future of Marvel, back in April, Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief C.B. Sibluski, who we, by the way, mentioned, will be sitting down with Joe Casita at this year's Comic-Con and doing paneling together, floated the idea that Marvel Comics is testing the water, so to speak, about holding a Marvel-centric convention event. We're talking about something that would be separate from, say, the D23 Expo, or certainly separate from what we were just talking about, the, the uh, Comic-Con International down in San Diego. CB went on to say there's a lot of different ways to, we, we have to think about it, but that's kind of an intriguing idea. Well, I mean, if, if you have, first you got the comic books, then you've got the films, mm. then you've got the TV shows that you put on Disney+. Plus. So you've got three different mm. distinct arms that you can promote, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you do that, you also then don't have to share the spotlight with anybody else. Because let's say mm. James Gunn cracks it out of the park with his you know, first teaser trailer for... Superman Legacy. Mm -hmm. And what if it blows the snot out of whatever Marvel put up on screen that day? All the buzz mm -hmm. goes to DC. And just by a comparison level, everyone's like, oh, boo, DC's doing better than Marvel because that looked better at mm -hmm. the uh, at the Comic-Con convention. Well, if it's just a Marvel panel and you're just showing off Marvel products, you don't have to worry about, does our competition look more sparkly than we do on this outing? That's not a bad idea. No, it, it, it's certainly not. In fact, in the second half of today's show, we're going to talk about that Stan Lee documentary that just recently bowed on, on Disney+. And that made its debut at the Tribeca Film Festival earlier this year. 
And so much of Stan's story and, and Marvel's story is is based in New York City and Manhattan and the boroughs and that sort of thing. I, I can get behind that idea, but on the other hand, if I were looking, trying to make the decision, well, do I want to go to this this Marvel you know, only fan event? You know, the fact that something like that might premiere there or I would get my first chance to see that, that might be the difference between, okay, I'm buying a plane ticket, I'm getting a hotel room, I got to check this out. Right. So anyway, speaking of which, folks, when we get back, Aaron and I are going to talk about that documentary as well as episode three of Secret Invasion. But first, this. As Mr. Testa always likes to say, well, in this case, it's not a, a hearty round of congratulations. Uh, in this case, it's it's a sincere apology. Rogers the Musical opened at Disney California Adventure last Friday, June 30th. And you'll remember, Aaron, on last week's show, I was mentioning that when I went to the D23 Expo and saw, I, I keep calling it the We Can Do This All Day number that Mark Shaman wrote, but I think it's actually called Save the City. That number's still in the show. However, the, the rest of the, the songs that have been written, the rest of the stuff has been staged evidently is flat out wonderful this 30 plus minute long live musical that's being presented in that uh hollywood uh pictures backlot or excuse me the hollywood land part of the a theme park universally great reviews all four performances are selling out every day so kudos to the creative team there i and i guess my one complaint is that it's still at this point folks scheduled to end on August 31st. And if I'm being completely honest here, I'd love for this thing to extend because starting on September 1st of this year is when DCA start presenting its Oogie Boogie Bash. And in the best of all possible worlds, I'd, I would make a special trip out west to try to do Oogie Boogie Bash as well as catch Rogers the Musical. But I guess if you aren't going to get out there, folks, if you head over to YouTube, there's a a number of videos already of Rogers the Musical, and not to give too much away, but they really do lean into the Steve Rogers Peggy Carter story hmm. and do a really sweet job with it. You know, congratulations to the team, and if you manage to get out to California this summer and happen to be over the Disneyland Resort, maybe make an effort to see this one, folks. Okay, now to pivot to episode three of Secret Invasion. Uh, before we get started here, wanted to share something that Secret Invasion director Ali Salim uh, recently shared with The Hollywood Reporter. Nick Fury, we all know this because we've all seen the teaser trailer for The Marvels, but Nick Fury is featured in the next theatrical release uh, from Marvel Studios. And in fact, remember, once upon a time, The Marvels was supposed to be released to theaters on July 28th. And the interesting thing is that the final episode of Secret Invasion would have dropped on Wednesday, July 26th. So this was Kevin Feige's dream with that level of connective tissue, that sort of, with virtually no lag time story-wise between the story that Marvel Studios was telling with a limited series and then with its next theatrical release. And more to the point, you would have had to go to the movies to see what happened next with Nick Fury. But uh, but then February 17th of this year, Marvel's got pushed off to November 10th, and so that's not happening anymore. But back to Ali Salim now. 
he recently got asked while he was working on Secret Invasion if he'd had to communicate with the Marvel's production team. And his response to The Hollywood Reporter was, the answer is yes. They're not protracted conversations. It was just simply, where do you need Fury to be? You know, and then, okay, you need him here? Great. And then we write into that. And as to why that was the approach, Ali flat out said, it's because this is all about my pay grade. You know, the decisions about what's happening next with these characters are, you know, it's, it's, it's Mr. Feige and friends. So, By the way, if I were the one taking that phone call yep. and someone said, hey, I'm writing the uh, next uh, movie, where's Nick Fury got to be? Like, oh, shit, we forgot to tell you. Um, <laughs> we had him get fired from S.H.I.E.L.D. He's actually working at Baskin Robbins. He's filling in for uh, Ant-Man on his days off. Yeah, go ahead and write that. <laughs> Hang up the phone. Call back like a week later. Be like, oh, you uh, fell for it. I'm sorry. It was just a joke. Wow. <laughs> that, that would actually be fun to, to, to film. Okay. Now, I also wanted to follow up on something that Aaron had said earlier. You had mentioned for... As part of episode one, when Nick Fury returns to Earth, and again, he's he's been out traveling the cosmos, supposedly looking for a new home for the Skrulls. And we get that pillar of light. We get some sound effects, but we never see the ship. Right. And I bring this up because you mentioned that that seemed, you know, kind of on the cheap side. Did you get the dialogue in this most recent episode about how in the attack in the square that we saw at the end of, of episode one, that 2,000 people had been killed, which is why the world is, is on, on edge. Where the hell were they all hiding? I didn't see them. Well, no, no, that's it exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm no disrespect. You know, is a well-staged scene, but it just, I would put the number of people in that square at, 200 300 max and so after the fact to be trying to sell this is you know well 2,000 people were killed and and I mean I I get that they're using dialogue to up the stakes because the I'm sorry the visuals did not put that across but I'm beginning to think Aaron you were genuinely on to something that this is the first of the Marvel limited series where sort of the budget retraction is showing up on screen. Though I did love the scene today in the cafe at the museum where the hero confronted Gravik and everybody else in the cafe suddenly stood up uh, and became Gravik. And, and it was, I mean, I thought, you know, between the fact that the camera moved and it was a, a, a brilliant use of, of visual mm-hmm. effects, very effective. Mm-hmm. But what about you? What? How did you feel about episode three? Well, yeah, we're still in the middle of a story, so it's hard to gauge everything. I do feel the tension is being ratcheted up significantly, which is good. Finding out that uh, Nick Fury's married to a Skrull. Mm-hmm. I was like, you dirty dog, you. Mm-hmm. I know what you're doing. I'm feeling like a redhead tonight, baby. What do you say? (laughs) Hey, uh, we're walking down the mall. You see that blonde? Go tap her on the shoulder real quick. Get some of that DNA cooking. (laughs) I mean, it was like, it was was shocking at first Mm -hmm. that uh, we were asking on the last episode, what kind of woman would marry a guy like Nick Fury? And the answer is, there isn't one. It had to be a scroll that that would do it. So, um... 
and that you know they're they're back and forth you know working with each other and i don't know if you noticed the the little paperwork that she handed off to him when they were meeting at the the restaurant table yeah mm-hmm. was yep. uh the guy who was in charge of the red room for the black widows she was handing him a little document saying this should keep i can't remember the guy's name and his team mm-hmm. on, on their heels but Later oh, God, on, looking at, right. at Twitter, everybody was like, oh, yeah, that's the guy who was in charge of the Black Widows in the Red Room. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. OK, great. So that flashback does have more connective tissue, which would kind of help a- explain a little bit more why uh, Natasha and Nick were tight, because they mm-hmm. were they've been friends since the old days, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting tie there. Now, uh, speaking of which, and again, I uh, apologize, folks, you know, we are going to talk a little bit story-wise uh, episode three but what did you think of kind of the reconstruction or reinvention of, of nick fury's career oh he got he got all the help from the scrolls helping him out he really didn't do as much i actually like that quite a bit because mm-hmm. it makes him more of a human like you know before he was just the super spy badass and and it's not like we've ever seen him do anything incredibly badass except be the head of the team and keep a cool head and when stuff goes crazy so he's always kind of acted like a leader but to find out that the, the, having scrolls in disguise getting him all of his top secret information to help boost his career actually makes a lot of sense and uh I was like yeah that that actually just makes him more of a human that needs help of others okay Okay. I mean, I, I'm having a little trouble with a, a vulnerable Nick Fury because I really enjoyed Nick Fury badass. And just this whole notion of Nick Fury who came back from the blip and wasn't himself. In fact, I, you know, that whole piece of dialogue where the wife was talking about you came back from the blip and then you disappeared again, right. you know, that you retreated. So, I mean, again, we have three episodes left. Well, part of the thing about Nick real real quick is we've only seen him for like a minute or two in each film. He's never been like a super central character. In Avengers, the first Avengers, he was there a lot more. But for the most part, he's just been a supporting character who shows up, gives a task, and then buggers off. And this is the first chance where he's actually got enough room to actually have a character arc that takes him somewhere. And I don't think he's just had the, the luxury of uh, space and time in a film mm-hmm. to, to be given that uh, growth. So I think okay. this is a good place for it. Okay. Well, I, again, like I said, again, we have three episodes left, and I'm intrigued to where this is going to go now. I mean, we, we've name-dropped Super Scrolls, so, and, and more to the point, anybody who's seen the trailer for this thing has seen Gravik, you know, sort of manifesting Groot's ability, you know, to sort of create a giant tree room limb surging out of his arm. So did you see the screenshot with the, the many different heroes that they're going to be taking bits from? Yes. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, when he healed... In the cafe after... The knife wound in the hand. Yeah, when uh, Talos stabbed Mm -hmm. him. Did I first see that in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I honestly don't know, but remember the one woman was interrogating the Skrull and cut off a finger. Don't Mm -hmm. they immediately Mm -hmm. replace a a lost limb? I really don't know. I know that on on the... There was a computer screen that showed several names. Groot was among them. 
Uh, to see mm-hmm. that in the trailers, mm-hmm. no surprise. Uh, Obsidian okay. Cull was another one. There we go. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was named, and uh, I can't recall, but there was there were like two others. Uh, oh, uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a Jotunheim, I believe, a frost giant was one yes. of them, and then uh, mm-hmm. the fourth. Now that I can't remember, but yeah, they're. It's not like they're taking the power of Thor and and stuff like that quite just mm-hmm. yet. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see when they get a little melange. What I was kind of wondering was. This machine that they're going to be infusing superpowers into Skrulls, could mm-hmm. it be used to create an X-Man? Oh. I wonder. Oh. I wonder. Could we get a little mutation going on with the help of a little machine? That would be a nice little way to launch some of that into the MCU. Okay. Now, one final thing here, and I'm just we're going to suggest you... You jump ahead a, a minute or so in the show because Aaron and I are going to talk about something that happened in episode three that potentially is going to have an impact on, on episodes four, five, and six. When Maria Hill was killed at the end of episode mm-hmm. one, okay, we knew she was gone because we had the scene with the mom. And they, in fact, they started off episode two with basically a shot from above of her bleeding out before. No, no, no. Nick no, Sirius. on episode two, they started off with the coffin being loaded into the plane. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the recap. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. Yes, the recap. So they yep. shot up above you know, and her bleeding out. And you're right. Coffin loaded under the plane, the grieving mom, that sort of thing. So this is not open for debate. Have you been paying attention to what's being said about maybe Gaia isn't in fact dead I mean we we saw her shot we saw a wound in her chest but there's a number of folks who have been going over the various trailers for the show and pointing out that's Amelia Clark in scenes we haven't haven't showed up in the show I'll tell you why I think, and this was just from the way they shot that scene. Mm -hmm. Now, like you said, with Maria Hill, they did the shot from above, looking straight down Mm -hmm. with the bleeding out. Okay, so in this case, she gets shot, she's laying flat on her back in the middle of the street, and then they have this shot where the car is driving away, and it's out of focus, like it's off in the distance, and that just the way that that camera is focused yeah. would have been perfect if she would have sat upright there we go. and her head would have shown up in that. It would have been in focus. I guarantee it. Yeah. And I think the editor went, nope, let's cut it right before she sits up and leave that a mystery. Okay. Leave it hanging. Okay. Just because of the way that the, the car lights driving away were out of focus. That's my belief there. Okay. You and me both, you know, the way that was framed... And the choices. So I have this uneasy feeling. Some somewhere between four and six, we're we're gonna see her. I mean, as you mentioned, just sit up in that shot, and her storyline continues. Now, before we get out of spoiler territory, I got to throw a little uh, monkey wrench into the works here. Okay. Latest conspiracy theory on the Twitter is, mm-hmm. Rhodey's a scroll. Yeah, yeah. And now, if you think about that conversation they had at the diner or the restaurant or the bar or whatever. Mm-hmm where Rhodey stripped Nick of all of his duties. Well, yep. what if he's not even got the power to do that? What if he's a Skrull in disguise and and Nick thinks that he has no authority mm-hmm. and he actually still does. He just doesn't use it because he thinks he's been demoted. Mm-hmm. Now, at the very end of this episode, Nick's wife picks up the phone to make a call and I swear that sounded just like Rhodey's voice. Well, you see, now, that uh, the interesting thing, I, I was going to defer to you as King Audio Professional, 
because you know when I watched episode three, it was this morning at my kitchen table with a set of headphones on, watching it on my laptop. So I was not using high grade. So I could barely, you know, it's a, I, I saw that uh, Charlene Woodard was talking into her phone, but I couldn't hear who was at the other end. But yeah, the way Rhodey behaved in that scene was not the Rhodey I've previously seen in the MCU. So that would certainly explain a lot. But I think this limited series with so much of the info they've dropped, like again, a million scrolls on Earth and hard to know who's who. Though that said, I have to say in episode two, Olivia Coleman is the British version of of Nick Fury is really used in the show as paprika but man when she comes in she is just so much fun yeah and she's definitely this badass who you know but at the same time it's very proper and you know it's like and I, I love you know she clips the you know for example that moment where she clips the the finger off of the scroll and oh okay that's settled and then yep. just moves on with her interrogation it's like she's definitely needs to be in in more material in the MCU. Oh. She's a welcome addition, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, and, yeah. and speaking of welcome additions, the Stan Lee documentary that recently debuted on, on Disney+, Plus, the, the smart choices that the filmmakers made having Stan tell the story in his own voice, and, and this took hundreds of hours of going through thousands of, of recordings and that sort of thing and looking for the the individual pieces of audio. But honestly, one of my favorite episodes of Mud that we've ever done is uh, the one that we did back in November of 2018, where you put together a personal tribute to Stan and talked about how much he meant to you. So I was just wondering, given how long you've been following this man's career and how much you know about uh, Stan's life and, and what he accomplished, what you thought of the film. Well, I, you know, it started off with, um, it's not quite claymation. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't even know if it's digital or if they actually built little models and then filmed it. Mm -hmm. But whatever it is, it's really neat and I liked it so very much because you start off with Stan narrating mm -hmm. and almost the entirety of this is Stan in Stan's own words, mm -hmm. which I think is great. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he's telling a lot of the stories and, and really, even though I've heard Stan tell the creation of the Spider-Man story a bazillion times, mm -hmm. this one still had a few new lines in it that I hadn't heard in other variations. But uh, it's still the same old story, just, just you know, with a fresh coat of paint. Mm -hmm. But the, the way that they did the little... I don't want to call them animations necessarily, but the claymation or the computer graphics, whatever it is, mm -hmm. looked really sharp, and it really helped tell the story and set you in a time and a place mm -hmm. in a fun and creative way when you don't have the actual photos and, and video footage of that event. You kind of want something to put up on the screen because if you just have a talking head, it gets kind of boring to sit there and just look at the talking head for an hour. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to put something else up on the screen that supports the story that you're being told. And I think that was one of the things where they did a really great job of using... St and the other thing about this is I can hear a difference from one tape to another. Mm -hmm. So if it were to be Stan speaking on, you know, February of 1975 and they jump to, you know, 
December of 1982, mm-hmm. you'll hear a difference in the audio quality oh, of those yeah. two recordings side mm-hmm. by side. Mm-hmm. So what I really found amazing was a lot of these stories are told in the same telling mm-hmm. on that same recording front to back. And they'll get like one complete story and then they'll jump to like maybe a different narrator's voice uh, of maybe uh, Jack Kirby mm-hmm. or, or someone like that for a minute. And then they'll come back with a different recording of Stan from a different era that continues the story. Mm-hmm. So they did a really great job of piecing all of these puzzle pieces together to give you a beginning, a middle, and an end, even though these recordings weren't necessarily done mm-hmm. in the linear style of beginning to end. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite bits in the in the film, because we were just talking about the little bit of heat between Mr. Stan Lee and uh, John Romita Sr. Mm-hmm. And uh, they do cover that. And Stan, you know, he does this thing, well, I come up with the ideas and, you know, I give it to someone else. And, and you know, in Stan's mind, he created it. And then, you know, you get Romita saying, well, you know, I drew the darn thing and I had to, you know, storyboard everything and I created this. And, and they have that difference of opinion. And that's not hidden mm-hmm. or shied away from it all. But there's this little bit towards the end where apparently uh, John Romita Sr. is being interviewed on the radio, mm-hmm. uh, physically in studio. And the DJ's like, oh, we're so happy to have you here. And oh, boy, we've got a surprise for you on the f- other end of the phone is a longtime friend, Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. And this is probably after they haven't spoken in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it starts off so very cordial, you know, Stan, oh, hey, how you doing there? It's mm-hmm. so good to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, very cordial back and forth. And then it gets to... A, yeah, but, you know, when someone has an idea and you give it to someone else, you know, they're they're the creator. And then it's like, oh, no, no, no. And you can just see they're, they're trying to be polite because they know they're in public. <laughs> but, man, they do not agree on what the other person is saying in this moment. And it's it's nice to be able to hear them disagreeing well, amicably <laughs> in public because you always get the whole you know, so-and-so said this, or they may have seen a thing and and reported about it, and it's always secondhand news type of thing. Mm -hmm. But this was actually the two of them hashing it out publicly and politely. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was just a really nice touch because it always seems so bitter. Mm -hmm. You know, so-and-so's being sued for some money because they didn't get the rights or, you know, the the credit that they deserve. And and this kind of goes to support, yeah, they, they didn't agree on it, but really... You know, when you sit at home and you watch this yourself, play judge for a minute. How do you, how do you feel? Did Stan create it because he had the idea of a kid who had problems who dresses up as a spider guy? Mm-hmm. Or do you credit the guy who drew the costume and, and you know, the, the kid with the glasses and all of that stuff? Because, I mean, really, I think they should both get credit. Split it down the middle, 50-50. Evidently, the one note that Disney supposedly gave David Gelb you know, as we put together this documentary, and and it's it, it's the very same note that Disney always gives to anybody who's wake, making a movie now about Walt, and it's like we don't want any images of him smoking. Oh yeah, sure. So if you you go through this film, and if you think about when Stan came up through the industry, and more to the point, just remember everything you saw on Mad Men. You know, the 1960s, it was all in a haze of smoke. Everybody smoked. and But that was the whole thing, that, yes, the images that you pick to support this, you know, the video, we can't have Stan smoking. So uh, other than that Disney thing, we're fine with this take on it. We're fine with what you were just talking about, the, the John Romita Sr. moments where, you know, it's like there's actually some push and pull about who created what character and 
I, I have to ask though, Aaron, do you think though, given that that Disney is talking about, well, this is going to be the definitive, the authoritative thing. This is what we're going to have in Disney Plus if you go to the Marvel section or looking to learn more about Stanley. Do you think we're finished talking about Stanley yet? No, because as long as you can make money off the the man's name, they will. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's very wow. Honestly, you know, I mean, seriously, no, it is. No, uh, no, you're not wrong. This is Disney, after all. Yes, okay. I had just seen today. Yeah. Actually, this is from July first. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jess Larson mm-hmm. is apparently a writer for a television show that was up on Hulu. Yep. And he was disappointed to find out they're taking off all of our episodes off of Hulu today, the day after word of cancellation. These businesses are heartless and greedy. Art should be timeless. This is what we are striking for. And one of the follow-up points that he made about this type of decision-making is Mm -hmm. there will never be another Buckaroo Banzai. There will never be another cult movie that didn't find its place in theaters but did find a home and love on VHS. Mm -hmm. Because if it doesn't hit within the first couple of weeks and they yank it off, how is anybody going to find it later? It won't be able to have that chance for cult status. So I, I'm thinking just because of the way things are going on with you know how Disney is, we've got cost-cutting measures mm-hmm. and Zazlav over at Warner Brothers Discovery mm-hmm. just slashing stuff left and right. Mm-hmm. I think right now if you're a consumer of this media and you really, really enjoy it, mm-hmm. just put that stuff on loop for the afternoon while you're at work mm-hmm. just so it gets spins mm-hmm. on the old counter back at headquarters and that way maybe we can prevent things from just being blasted off the face of the earth because it didn't have immediate success on day one. It is a strange... You're talking about Crater, right? The Disney Plus series that... I mean, it just Well, they were on Hulu, but the Disney Plus also took off Single Drunk Female, Mm -hmm. which uh, I I don't know who the woman is that's connected to that, but she was also Mm -hmm. chiming in on, you know, her her project being canceled and taken off of their platform. So, I mean, there's a lot of creators out there who put their heart and soul into a thing, and then the company put it up for a week and it didn't immediately catch wildfire. It is a genuinely strange time in the industry. And and the terrible part is that so many of these streaming services are just nowhere near profit and what they promised Wall Street. So that they are making some just flat out startling moves. And circling back to Stan now, and and we're definitely going to hear more about who did what uh, in regard to Marvel Comics because Mark Evanier, who wrote Kirby King of Comics, this was uh, the book he wrote back in 2008. No, not yet. A wonderful book. It actually deservedly picked up uh, the Eisner that year for the the best comic-related book. Mark, who actually worked with Jack after he left Marvel, and I want to say during the period he was working at DC, but Mark is actually working on the definitive Kirby biography right now. So uh, we're probably a couple of years out yet from that book actually showing up on store shelves. But Mark is, is talked about Jack and, and Stan's relationship. And I'm, I'm going to be fascinated uh, further on down the line to see what else we can learn about uh, Mr. Lee when we finally get to read the Jack Kirby book. But, of course, the other thing that I always find fascinating is our, our Mr. Adams' uh, other project, other podcast that he does, a 32nd Street. Uh, what's coming up next? 
Well, this week's episode, we uh, focus on jingles, Mm -hmm. how we get little ditties stuck in your head, Mm -hmm. so that way anytime you're ready for a a hamburger, you're thinking the McDonald's jingle, Mm -hmm. and I mean, there's so many, so many that we've been bombarded with over the many, many decades. My dad was principal of an uh, elementary school in Massachusetts, and they did a campaign once they were raising money for playground equipment and it was literally kids bringing in box tops and they collected enough box tops that a representative from a a giant cereal manufacturer came to the school and presented them with a check for like ten thousand dollars in playground equipment and so my dad was there for the presentation and they what they did is they filled the auditorium with all the kids in the school so they could see that, you know, here, you here's the $10,000 checks and the kids could stand up and cheer, you know. But there was an advertising rep there who said, you know, before we present the check, can I go up and uh, on stage, can I talk to the little kids for a moment? And my dad was like, yeah, okay. And the guy went on stage and for like a minute just said, kids, I got a question. You know, what comes in the little blue jug? And the kids were like, Dynamo! And he he marched through 10 different ad slogans and jingles and that sort of thing. And, the kid, you know, 300 kids shouted out the response to any of them. And he, he mm-hmm. and that was the thing. He just stepped up stage and said, nope, just, just wanted to be sure that, that I'm doing... That the jingles work? <laughs> that the jingles work. And my dad said yeah. he, it was the most chilling thing he ever saw. I get it, to see these 300 sweet little kids suddenly become Madison Avenue robots. I, I know exactly who that character is. I know exactly what that song is. And it's like... Wow. So. There used to be a number of commercials that played so heavily when I was a child mm-hmm. that when it got to the announcer tag, mm-hmm. I would immediately go from like nine year old boy mm-hmm. into announcer mode at 1390 Bagley Street, Alpena, Michigan, 48604. And uh, my dad would <laughs> shake his head and be like, man, something is broken in my kid. And uh, yeah, and now it's my career. There you and, go. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, it kind of starts to make sense now. Matter so, Matter yep. Next 32nd Street, we talk about jingles, how we brainwash you mm-hmm. and train you. And then uh, you can't get the little ditty out of your head. Next thing you know, you're scarfing down a cheeseburger. Uh, all right. I'm very, very much looking forward to, to, to hearing that one. By the way, we, we do have some other podcasts here that, you know, if you, you have the chance, folks, you want to check out. We, of course, have uh, the Mothership, Disney Dish, which I do with Lentesta. Uh, likewise, we have a fine-tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor. And by the way, Mr. I don't know if you heard the news, Mr. Taylor's podcast, the one he does with Charles Hood, Light the Fuse, has just become the official Mission Impossible podcast. It's the Paramount has brought it in-house, which I thought was very, very cool. Apparently, Tom Cruise had to go in there and, and put somebody in a headlock until they did it. <laughs> I so. have heard that same story, which I thought was very, uh-huh. very cool. Uh, and, and we have a, a brand new episode of Looking at Lucasfilm coming up where we we talk about what happened with Dial of Destiny and uh, what went on with the box office there. Anyway, folks, uh, tell you what, if you could do Aaron and I a favor... If you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Marvelous Disney, but also 32nd Street, that would be incredibly helpful. Likewise, if you really like what you heard here tonight, you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be cool as well. Aaron, also, I, I so enjoy, you know, when you show up on, on the Twitter, can you tell the nice folks how they can find you there? 
Yes, uh, you can find me at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. If you tweet something, you better make it damn good because I've got 599 views. I've only got one view left for the day before my counter resets. Damn you, Elon! Yeah, it did get a little interesting. It kind of reminds me of the bit from the one of the Star Wars Family Guy parodies mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, hold your fire. Like, what are you paying by the laser now? <laughs> <laughs> when the escape pod gets jettisoned, they're like, yeah, good point. Are you paying by the laser? Are we paying by the tweet? Is that what's going on? Anyway. Yeah, very true. Very true. All right. Speaking of us, though, you can still find me on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. Um, Anyway, folks, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of Mr. Adams, uh, we hope to see you again soon.